While EPA lawyers collect 23 billion pennies from heaven to sue coal workers under Congress's new budget, we sit down with our special guest, James Amundsen, to discuss Congressman-elect Andy Ogle's new job in Tennessee's 5th District. And Gary drills down deep to uncover more Chinese influence at the subnational level at the University of Tennessee. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. I think we need to start with some music. There we go. I knew it was coming back. <laughs> knew it was coming at some point. But of course, it's December now, so... You guys know this song is appropriate. Don't you know each cloud contains banners from heaven? You know this song? I'm sorry. I've, I've heard it before, okay. but I like it. Don't quiz me. Let's, let's finish the first verse, then we'll... Yeah, so Louis Prima... Um, it's actually not a Christmas song, but it has, oh, it just, has kind I made of, that assumption. But it has kind of attained a resurgence um, about 20 years ago when Elf came out, you know, oh, with yeah. Will Ferrell. Yes. When he's in New York walking around the city, he's not supposed to be chewing gum. You know, Santa Claus tells him <laughs> when he goes to New York, don't pull the gum off the street. It's not free candy. But of course he does and starts eating a bunch of gum. Well, this, this is absolutely why I recognize the song, because Elf is by far my wife's most favorite Christmas movie. And the voice you're hearing, by the way, we'll do a formal introduction later, is that of James Amundsen. That wasn't Gary having... Gary does have a cold, but that I do, wasn't I that I do have bad. a cold. I sound a little different. That's all right. <laughs> Well, the reason I started with, with Pennies from Heaven is not just because it is, is a little bit of a taste of Christmas. It Guess who, Gary, is getting or is feeling like they're getting pennies from heaven in the 2023 budget that's currently before Congress? Uh, me? <laughs> Don't you wish. <laughs> so well, the lawyers... Key, keynote keyword, pennies. The, the lawyers always get the money, right? From our pockets. So do you know that there is a line item among all the other outrageous pennies from heaven, $240 million is allocated for one purpose and one purpose only, to sue, to sue who? Coal workers. Ooh. There is a line item in the budget. This is the federal budget specifically allocated for suing coal workers. On, on what basis? <laughs> on the basis, Gary, that coal is evil. Oh. It's it's a moral problem, right? So, what's, ironically, What's right, Santa Claus going to do? What will Santa Claus do, right? He can't put coal in people's stockings Golly. if there is no coal. How in the world are you going to fund all the electric vehicles if you don't have coal-fired plants to provide the electricity to charge them? It's really incredible where we are and that that's actually a budget item, but that shows you exactly where this administration is. Unbelievable. Pennies from heaven. Pennies from, so those lawyers are definitely turning their umbrellas upside, upside down. down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I get it now. Yeah. I get everything you've put together. There Thank we go. You. Okay. I'm glad you didn't quiz me on that. Well, I do have a quiz for you, though. Okay. And I'll open it up to our guest, James Amundsen, too. This is by far my biggest fear. Oh, now the I quiz? have now there's now I have not only do I have a as, quiz, I have a challenger. As a regular <laughs> as a regular listener of this podcast, Let's go. these quizzes, they're tough. Oh. What is national inversion? We should have a... I don't know, Kevin. We James? 
This is an economic term. Um, it's actually not an economic term. Oh, okay. I see why you were scared of the question. <laughs> <laughs> National inversion is actually a coined phrase, and it's used to describe this scenario. So the United States was founded on the premise that we are a free people by nature, right? And that what government does is only according to what the people give it permission to do, right? Well, with everything that is happening in our country today and all across the world, but specifically in the United States because of our founding and our founding principles, we are now reaching the point of national inversion whereby the government now is free to do virtually anything it wants, and yet the people can only act with permission. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it's an inversion of the power structure, essentially. That's what national inversion is. Oh, we've, gosh. When do you think, when do you think that national inversion officially happened in the United States? When did the people officially go to the bottom of the food chain in terms of our authority? I think it's a moving target. Yeah. I don't think it's finished yet. And it certainly didn't happen overnight. It is the old proverbial frog in the kettle of boiling water. If it happened, if they attempted to do it quickly, nobody would have stood for it. But it had to be incremental over generations, right? As our parents and our grandparents died off, and as the schools were filled with indoctrination, and which has always been a goal of the left, you have that convergence, which leads to, Gary, what you mentioned two weeks ago in our podcast about in this 2022 election, Gen Z voted, what was it, plus 28 Democrat? D, D plus 28. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're heavy, heavy, heavy left-leaning voters. Yeah, and that's a consequence, mm-hmm. right? That's not a leading condition. That's a, that's an indicator, uh, that's a follower of what's actually been Yeah, and to your point happening. that it's been a moving target in that, I love, I'm going to go back and look that, I'm going to look at more references towards national inversion, but I did a study a while back because I had a presentation and I can't remember where it was I spoke, but I basically put a chart together of how authority should flow from we the people and juxtaposed that against how authority actually flows, which in my view, uh, this was back when whenever we were doing the OSHA mandates and the CMS mandates and all that. And in my view, really, the it's, it's SCOTUS right now that sits at the top of the food chain. And you know, and really digging through the idea of judicial review and all that. I mean, that goes back to 1803. And what I did, I referenced, this is when Sonia Sotomayor, this was in the oral arguments for the Dobbs case. This is before Dobbs was decided, the Roe v. Wade case. And in the Dobbs case, in the oral argument, Sotomayor says, uh, and and she means this as as a good thing, she says, you know, the courts, um, and she's defending Roe, she says, you know, the courts have a right to bring definition to the Constitution. And in fact, you know, in 1803 in Marbury v. Madison, she says, we gave ourselves the power of judicial review. She said, what's, what's amazing is that she said this, this is the words of a sitting Supreme Court justice. She says, you won't find those powers in the Constitution, but we derive them from our ability to interpret the Constitution. I mean, you got a sitting court justice acknowledging that in 1803, the Supreme Court gave itself, itself, mm-hmm. power that the people had not given it. And I say that just to say, because we think about national inversion and how the power structure is, is shifting so radically. But Kevin, it was shifting in 1803. Yeah. Yep. You know, and I, I want to suggest that it accelerated after the uh, 
the turn of the 20th century, especially during FDR's administration, mm-hmm. uh, where we saw, you know, due to economic crisis, the government take over so much responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an economic crisis that the government is always um, behind, right? Puppet master. Absolutely. The entire progressive movement has been going at this for over 100 years now. Well, fear is a great driver for folks to be willing to give up their liberty, whether it be a a fear of uh, economic failure or a fear of death from Mm -hmm. a scary virus. Absolutely. Why do do the scriptures tell us? I think someone actually did research that there are 365 references to God telling us to fear not in the scriptures. In other words, one for every day. One of the reasons, among multiple reasons for that, is because when a person is afraid, he acts or she acts irrationally, right? If you, if you are afraid of something, then you will give up things that you would otherwise not give up when you're not under conditions of fear. So Jesus wasn't just telling us to not be afraid because he was ultimately in charge, which he is, but he was also saying that at the human level, because when you are afraid, you're not thinking clearly, you're not thinking according to the way that God intended you to think. Yep, exactly. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into a, a commentary I wrote earlier this week, this week or last week, I can't remember anymore, but it's nice to lead off with this because it will transition, I think, quite nicely into whatever you have prepared for the, for the China cabinet. And, um, and it's such a specific example, mm-hmm. right, of what's going on here even in Tennessee. But I, I wrote a commentary, and you can go to TennesseeStands.org and read this, but it's called, If at First You Don't Succeed, in vaccinating the children. Try, try again with a little help from China. And this is such an an important thing because it just goes to show how far your government will go to do what it wants to do, to do what it has a mindset to do, regardless of how hard we the people work to secure certain liberties through our elected representation. So last year, I, I was so thankful that our government operations committee uh, in the General Assembly took then-Commissioner of Health Lisa Piercy and the Tennessee Department of Health to task over the fact that not only were they advertising, but of course using state dollars, marketing the shot to children. And uh, they they got blasted really hard. I mean, Senator Janice Bowling, Representative Scott Sapicki, Senator uh, Kerry Roberts, uh, who are all part of that GovOps committee, lit into them viciously and it was it was quite rewarding and, and fun to watch to be honest mm-hmm. and you know senator roberts made it very clear that the intention of the committee was that the tennessee department of health immediately stop marketing to children and so they did but then what did they do next the the very next year now enter 2022 the tennessee department of health issues a $5.5 million grant to the University of Tennessee's College of Nursing to do what? To market this shot mm-hmm. to kids, uh, you know, through their families and their parents, of course, but going to the low income, the poor, you know, yada, 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 and convincing these families that the right thing to do is to vaccinate their children. And we're paying $5.5 million to do that. But of course, you know, your government's not doing it. It's just, it's the university. Can I ask you a question? It's the College of Nursing. Let me, let me interrupt just for a second. When I was reading your piece, that $5.5 million was already allocated to the Department of Health, right? Yes. Yeah, this is, 
Yeah, so in the budget, this would have been part of their already divvied up to the Department budget. of Health. Okay. And, and it was and the Department of Health who issued the grant. So once the Department of Health has their budget, it's within their discretion as to how to spend it? That's a good question. I'm not 100% certain is, you know, that if they choose to issue a grant, does that have to go through another step of approval? Right. I don't know. Just something to asterisk, and then I'll let you move on, and that is— and, and we James can... might know the answer to that question. <laughs> Having worked in a— <laughs> There you go. State agency. This is exactly why we brought James on today. Yes, there would be another grant approval process. Okay. So, yeah, there would be the dollars allocated in the budget, and then there would be some process. Now, it may be the department that is making that grant decision, but there will like be— Like a, a rubber stamp, then, maybe. For all intents and purposes, yes. So my question is, and this is an asterisk for another discussion, one of the things we might consider then is giving pushback through the legislature to control how these grants in the future, right, knowing now that they've basically done an end around, that in the future the legislature should also make clear that not only can you not do this, but you can't issue grants that will go against something we told you not yeah. to do. <laughs> and sometimes the legislation is very specific. Um, there was a particular grant that came through my department, the Department of Veteran Services here in the state of Tennessee, and there was uh, uh, you know, specific requirements to issue the grant. So you would have to uh, look at the, the law and make sure that you're adhering to that. Good. So enter, and, and here's the, the interesting connection. So as I'm digging into the grant, digging into this program, I notice a name, and it makes me dig a little bit, that one of the, the folks in the University of Tennessee that is in charge of leading the development of this program is Dr. Zhuping Li. Well, Dr. Zhuping Li... Sounds has, like a Dutch name, Gary. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, Danish. <laughs> so so he's been now with the University of Tennessee, oh, for about a decade um, in various departments. And uh, he's now in their uh, data engineering sort of department. Well, he's a graduate. Now, I went deep on this, and this is, this is interesting. He's a graduate of Nankai University, where he got his, his bachelor's and his master's, which is a Chinese state-sponsored premier university in the Tianjin province in China. So I dig into Nankai University a little bit. Again, this is a, this is a state-sponsored mm -hmm. university, which I'm assuming they all are. His university, Nankai, was part of the 985 project, which started in 1998 by the Chinese Communist Party for the express purpose of creating an environment in this university that would, that would make the CCP more attractive globally and also open up opportunities to place their graduates abroad, okay? <laughs> And it just so happens that this program started in 1998. Zhu Ping Li graduated Nankai with his master's in 1999 and then gets put in the Arizona State University in the Ph.D. program in 2002. I'm right just, in the heat of the CCP placement plan. So I'm just chomping at the bit to take <laughs> all of our audience back to... Do you remember when we first opened the China cabinet, whatever that was, three, four, or five months ago, and we talked about this concept of sub-national entities, right? Yep. Chinese Communist Party has been very deliberate for years about getting below the federal government. They know the federal government has uh, is more institutionalized against their efforts. So what do they do? They go to the lowest common denominator, the lowest hanging fruit. 
what you're talking about here, what you just described, Gary, in your piece, um, including the Tennessee Department of Health and the University of Tennessee, are exhibit A's for this idea of subnational entities. And remember, and I'll refer back to our that you have to go back to the episode when we talked about the Newsweek article that came out, I think, in 2018 or 2020, that described which states and which governors were deemed friendly right. to the Communist Party of China. There were 14, one of which was? Bill Lee. Bill Lee in the state of Tennessee. Um, so all of this connects together. Your deep dive on that particular aspect of the Tennessee Department of Health and University of Tennessee funding and the professor that was involved, it's that soft power that communist China is using, and our state needs to know about it. Leading a program with your tax money Mm -hmm. to make sure that our children get vaccinated. Absolutely. This, by the way, in connection with, remember we've got the batteries in Chattanooga, right? Mm -hmm. Which are connected to the Canadian, quote-unquote, Canadian Chinese company in Utah it's yeah, not just batteries. It's literally lith- the the lithium, the lithium refinery. Yeah, the yeah. Ho- the whole so so the much largest the heart and in soul, the country. Yeah, the whole heart and soul of the EV industry. Yeah, really is here in the here. state of Tennessee. Our audience needs to know that and to be aware. Solutions coming, but being aware of it is a big part of it because uh, talking about it and letting your legislators know that you know about it can hopefully get us to that point where some legislator is going to. Um, start to confront these issues at a state level. Amen to that. So enter in, Kevin. Do you yeah. want to? Do you want to dive into the China cabinet? Well, like that, that was my that was my big China cabinet okay. piece. Kind of tie in. Yeah, I, I would. I'll add one thing though, since we're talking about a new con- Congress, and we can talk with our uh, esteemed guest. guest here today. We're going to let new him. Congress. We're going to let him talk. <clears throat> one of the things that a Republican, obviously. The Biden administration and now a Democrat-controlled Senate are not going to do anything about the threat of China. A Republican-controlled Congress can. It has at least spoken as if it will address the threat of China. Um, They actually have a committee on China, and there's a couple of recommendations that they can follow. These actually come from – I need to give credit where credit is due. This is an article published in – sorry – Oh, this is um, Center for Security Policy. Author's name is Bradley Thayer. He's the director of their China policy. He says two things that these committees can do. One, they can identify the Chinese penetration of the homeland along the avenues that we've talked about, this this kind of subnational approach that they're taking, um, as well as their global expansion and how that can be countered. Um, this author makes the point that while the U.S. government's overall response to China is um, of rather uneven quality in the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, there are some serious strategists working to stop the CCP's aggression. One of the things he mentioned, which is great, because we've seen this in the past when we were supporting Israel and they invited Netanyahu to come and speak in Congress, one of the things this writer says that the House of Representatives should do is to invite the president of Taiwan to address Congress. They should also invite Chinese human rights activists, dissidents, Tibetans, and survivors of China's genocide against uh, – what's the, the Muslims? Uh, the the Uyghur. 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 Thank Uyghurs. you. There you go. Thank you. The Uyghur, which is great. And I thought about that. Even in Tennessee, we should make a call out. Clearly, there must be 
Chinese dissidents in Tennessee, yeah. we should invite them onto this podcast. That'd be great. For that very make, purpose. Make a clear stand. Yeah. Well, we have with us today a very close friend of mine, someone I, I like quite a bit. And uh, mine. And yours, yes, that's true. I, I believe I knew James hey. before you okay. did. Hey, you guys Settle don't down. have to fight over me. There's, there's enough <laughs> James, James to go arms around. are getting ripped off like a rag doll. Uh, Mr. James Amundsen, who has uh, done quite a bit of work here in in Tennessee politically, here in our legislature, and and uh, working with uh, groups like American for Prosperity. I mean, you used to work in uh, the governor's administration, Department of Veterans Affairs, right? Yes. So you wait. Which which administration? Governor Lee. Bill okay. Lee. Mm-hmm. How come I didn't know that? It's because Gary's a better friend. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. <laughs> there we go. Thanks for proving my point. <laughs> and uh, and now I I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. But I'm I'm excited for. James, he's uh, is going on. There's a little transition time taking place, but I am transitioning. I'm transitioning, but, but <laughs> not what, the kind of transitioning that someone might be thinking. What are, of. What are you transitioning to, James? <laughs> I will be transitioning to the uh, the role as uh, district director for the Tennessee's fifth congressional district, which Andy Ogles will be assuming on January third. Well, so in short, I mean, for Congressman Ogles, you'll be you'll be the guy. Here in the state of here Tennessee. Here in Tennessee, yes. Yeah, running his district offices. Well, that's great. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. yeah. Sorry it's taken us so long. You've you've been in D.C. a little bit the last couple of weeks. Yes, I have. What's, it, what's it like over there? Is it fun, Jim? Are you having a good time No, please. In don't, ever, don't ever come back from D.C. <laughs> and tell us you've been having fun. <laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, um, I was asked to consider the role of chief of staff, but I quickly turned that down. Um, no slight to Grant Henry, who is the uh, chief of staff for Andy Ogles. Yeah. Um, but the poor guy has to go live there. Yes. Uh, you know, that's one of the requirements. I know there are some chiefs of staff that live back in district, but I think uh, for for Andy's sake, we need to have somebody dedicated mm-hmm. to that role in D.C. to manage that staff directly. Um, we've got things covered in the district. I think uh, we're going to be very successful. We've got a tight-knit uh, leadership team in this congressional office, and I'm just excited about the opportunity. That's great. What are the priorities of now Congressman Ogles? Or, yeah, even though he hasn't been sworn in, we, can, we don't have Gen- to call him we, Congressman-elect January anymore. 3rd, because right? he, we still have to refer to him as uh, member-elect or Congressman-elect, because okay. until he is sworn in on January okay. 3rd, okay. Uh, you know, that's... That's a title reserved for somebody that's actually in office. Priorities. Priorities, priorities for like Andy. Like Congressman Cooper? Boo. <laughs> <laughs> outgoing Congressman. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I yeah, clarify. That's outgoing Congressman. I, I think uh, Andy's priorities remain the same as the, uh, you know, discussed on the campaign trail, getting our economy back on track, addressing the border crisis, um, and just making sure that, uh, you know, we preserve our freedoms and liberties uh, that are being eroded at the federal level. So how, and I know you love these quizzes, James. Oh boy. <laughs> how can one member of Congress make a difference? How can one member of Congress be heard, right? 435 members, especially a new one. Well, I think there's an interesting dynamic in this incoming Congress that, you know, definitely instills more, how do I say, I don't want to suggest power, but uh, definitely more voice to uh, some of the members that aren't the establishment candidates, aren't the establishment uh, uh, members. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Freedom Caucus has definitely developed more strength in their voice just by virtue of 
being a, a larger portion of the incoming majority. Just to so, make sure our audit, I mean, so when you th- when we throw out the, throw out the term Freedom Caucus a lot, I mean, we're we're saying Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, Lowen, uh, Lauren Bobart. I mean, th- kind of those those figures. Yes, right. And Andy Biggs, I think, is one Andy of them. Andy Biggs is definitely one of them Steve as well. Scalise. Jim Jordan. Chip, yeah. Roy, Chip, Chip Roy. Roy, yeah. yeah Chip Roy. Okay, um, all right. Yeah, absolutely. So in that group, those members certainly uh, have a little bit more say than uh, they might have if there was a huge red wave. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's there's definitely an advantage right now for some of the more uh, conservative, outspoken members like Andy Ogles, who has been a demonstrated leader in our state. I think he's going to take that same kind of leadership to D.C. and uh, uh, hopefully move the ball uh, forward in in the um, on the field for conservatives. Kevin, we talked a little bit about in some past episodes too. I know the Center for Renewing America and Russ Vote they've been working like incredibly hard on stirring the pot, so to speak, uh, against tr- trying yes. to find another option to Speaker of the House uh, for versus Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. So. And what, and it's seemingly they've they've been quite successful. They've been very effective. So the, let me let me give you. I have to give one disclosure. I had a friend in D.C. that told me not not anybody from Center for Renewing America, but another colleague told me, Kevin, you need to disclose that you're a board member. I I thought that was unnecessary. I thought it would keep me. I thought it'd make me more of a target. But he said if you're if you're referring to something that happens either something that's advocated by or a paper or policy, he said, you need to disclose on air that. So I am, I'm a board member of the Center for Renewing America. Oh, okay. um, I'm, I'm actually chairman of the board of Citizens Renewing America, which is, which is their C4. I, I'll say that once. So we have it in the file. I'm not going to say it's that every time we make a reference because I felt a little awkward mentioning that. Okay. Having, having dispensed with that. Yes. What Russ Vote, who is the founder and the president of the organization, he has his history in the House of Representatives. He knows the House of Representatives and their procedures and, and strategy for getting things done in the House probably better than almost anyone who works on the Hill. And his position was, uh, as soon as the election happened, especially because it was such a small margin, which I think is what James was referring to, had there been a red wave, it would have been impossible to stop Andy McCarthy from be- Andy McCarthy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy from becoming speaker because how, how do you forget the name Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> I um you know actually I have I had, mixed feelings about the fact that he shares my first name. I hadn't thought about it that way on the the balance of power between yes. you know the more moderate or establishment you know quote unquote red wave Republicans that may have come mm-hmm. in that would have in effect sort of sealed the deal probably for a McCarthy yes. mm-hmm. because the margin would have been so great so the, they could have. Huh. You only need 218 to become Speaker of the House, and if they had a margin of, you know, if they had won 240 seats, then they could have lost 22 people and still won Speaker of the House. So now, because his margin is so thin, what are we up to, 225? Actually, I think it's less than that, Okay, 222. Okay, so we're now teetering on could be four, to five, four to five votes, um, maybe eight at most, that are all that that is necessary to prevent McCarthy and the CRA's position and which Chip Roy is probably the most vocal advocate for that position has been, this is our time as conservatives to finally make a change in the house from the establishment. The, the other side would tell you, Oh, you know, who else is going to become speaker then you don't have somebody in line necessarily. But as we talked about, 
it's not about having someone in line. It's preventing them from getting power. They will vote and eventually get someone who is acceptable to everybody to get the 218 votes. But Kevin McCarthy will not get a rubber stamp because it only takes those members who are above 218. So between, you know, five and eight or so of our majority, five and eight above 218 of our majority to stop that. And here's the other thing. If McCarthy does get elected, it's going to be because he's going to make some concessions. Exactly. And that's what, so here's the other thing. It's interesting. Week after the election, I was with some people in DC who told me that McCarthy was totally ignoring the conservatives who were demanding his concessions as if he didn't take their threat seriously. But you're absolutely right, James. The only way that McCarthy will become a speaker is if he concedes to these positions, committee positions, and actually making real changes to how some of the process goes. And there's, uh, at the top of the list, Andy Ogle signed a letter today. I don't know if you guys have had the opportunity to read it, um, but six or seven members also signed this letter, five current members, two members-elect, But the top of the list, uh, their number one demand was a process known as the ability to vacate the chair. So Mm -hmm. is it called vitiate the chair? That might be a quiz question. (laughs) Maybe just vacate. Somewhere in there, vitiate is one of the magic words. But I is it okay? But it could be vacate the chair and vitiates for something else. The basic premise is at any time they can call for a vote on the uh, the speaker. Speaker. So uh, that's at the top of the list. So when you're asking. How can one member make a difference? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe not just one member, but you know, just a handful of members is all it takes yep. to make that, a significant change. Has that ever been a, an approved rule of the House? Yes, pro- yes it actually was. Yeah. Okay. Yes, for, for many years. Um, it's only recently not been the case. Where you could make a call to replace the Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know when that changed, but it was, it was definitely in our lifetimes, and it's definitely in the recent. Well, I can't years. imagine that's been a rule since Pelosi's been in charge. No. So. Well, and maybe that's when it did change. I think that maybe may it was have been. Pelosi. Yes. Our audience well, I'm can shocked. check us on that. I'm sure. I'm sure we have some listeners that are you know, Googling it right now. <laughs> How about, okay, this is kind of a tangent, but we're talking about Congress, right? Okay. Did you guys see that, uh, what's her name? Christine Cinema? Cinema? Cinema. You just pronounce it cinema, mm-hmm. even though it's like S-I-E and... Is that Arizona, right? Yeah. yeah. Did you see what her announcement was today? Excuse me. Mm-mm. Big announcement. She's no longer going to be a Democrat. She's going to be an independent. Oh, wow. Okay. So when I saw the headline, I'm like, oh, great. Now the balance of power in the Senate is offset again. But you, <laughs> I got like it two paragraphs... It all depends on who they caucus It's exactly right. I got two paragraphs into it, and she said... Notwithstanding the fact that I'm an independent, I'm going to caucus with the Democrats, right. <laughs> I'm going to vote with the Democrats, and this doesn't change anything that I believe. So she was just uh, feeling like she wanted a headline? Yeah, what the heck? Gosh, <laughs> I I blew my nose today. That's about what that amounts to. <laughs> exactly. Who cares? No change. I'm just letting you know, no changes. It's kind of like Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Yep. So, James, come on, tell us some more. We, we brought you on here as a guest so you can give us some inside scoop that Gary and I couldn't otherwise dig up. <laughs> <laughs> that was my biggest fear about coming on this show with you guys is that, that, that you guys will be looking for some. James, some great we'll pull it out <laughs> if we have to. Don't make us. Yes. You promised. No, oh, no. No, James didn't promise. No, is there any, anything, though, that you think that we might benefit from that we don't know, a nuance or something personal that you're able to share about Andy in the process of transition from mayor of Murray County to a congressman and the different responsibilities, you know, state 
he skipped state, right? County to federal. Yeah, pretty much. It's quite a leap. Um, well, I mean, the only thing that I might share is that, uh, you know, Andy's going to kind of take things slow and deliberate here in the uh, the first six months to year. There's a lot for him to uh, learn about D.C. Uh, because of the fact that he did not go up that uh, normal pattern, normal path. He didn't, right. you know, climb through the ranks as the expectation is so often. And likewise, uh, on the D.C. side and district side, uh, Grant Henry, the chief of staff, me, uh, district director, neither one of us have held these positions or come up through the ranks in these in our in the respective areas as and well. And that's a good thing. It yeah. is. Right? It really don't is. ever mm-hmm. don't ever lose that part of it because the people in our experience and your experience, you know this. When we lose our representatives is when they become like DC. Right. When they when they hire staff that is like the rest of DC or hire staff that has already been operating mm-hmm. the rest of DC. Now, unfortunately, that is what's available to us. And as far as our leadership team is concerned, um, yet yeah, yes, Andy has a lot of managerial experience and experience as an executive over the over uh, county government. I come with some state experience, having worked for a state agency, uh, albeit for a year. That was long enough for me to be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to realize I'm not cut out to be a lifetime bureaucrat. But, you know, we are bringing those kinds of experiences. And, of course, uh, the experience that all three of us have had coming up through Americans for Prosperity and the uh, the philosophies and uh, around management and, and policy that we've developed uh, being part of that. Has Andy reached out to CPI, Conservative Partner in- Institute? Yes. I am not on the board of CPI. <clears throat> However, CRA offices and shares some board members with CPI, but not Kevin Cookagee. Kevin, I just want to make sure as we proceed with our podcast, how many more disclaimers are you going to have I, to make? Sorry, I didn't want to make that, Gary. It was suggested by a friend of mine okay. that I make it, and I felt awkward. No, CPI is great with staffing, Yes, right? Because CPI absolutely. was founded by Jim DeMint. And it was for the express purpose of cutting through this crap of conservatives going to the Hill and then hiring a bunch of lifers yes. for their mm-hmm. staff and get completely they, diluted and watered down. They have been a wonderful resource. I am uh, very impressed by the number of staff that we have been able to interview that are well aligned. There, there are conservatives mm-hmm. up in D.C., hard to believe. And, uh, you know, they've been trying to you know, make make their way through the swamp, just like uh, everybody else. But uh, it's been a godsend in many respects to have that kind of a resource up too, there. Too bad we couldn't get CPI to come help Bill Lee uh, hire <laughs> his staff, huh? <laughs> yes. Boy, would that have been super helpful. Uh, I almost get the, pre- the impression, Gary, that <laughs> Bill Lee's staff hired him. Wow. <laughs> That's true. It's got to be. It's, uh, other than the official it, election, it seems like everything well, else that has surrounded him has been the establishment and worse, Democrats. Well, I want to shift just a little bit. James, I mean, you're clearly you're learning a lot about Congress. That's new to you. But what's not new to you is Tennessee. I mean, not at all. Yeah. With Americans for Prosperity. I mean, you were part of preventing the income tax. You were part of getting rid of the hall tax. You you did a lot of work on on all those sorts of issues. I mean, AFP has always been a leader, I think, in kind of low-tax, good economy type of of measures. Very much a free market economic policy organization. So knowing Tennessee so well and having having worked as much as you have, James, how do we fix the rhino problem that we have here in Tennessee? I'm going to put you on. You you work here in Tennessee. James Uh, loves the quiz questions. uh, (laughs) Look, I mean, what our audience knows is 
Tennessee is not immune. Our legislature is not immune to the same issues we face in Congress. You have a Republican Party that sometimes does not mean a whole lot. We just finished talking about, well, gosh, if there was a red wave, what would that have meant for our ability to maybe actually get conservative leadership in Congress? We face those same issues here in Tennessee. And I'll, I'll say this, too. Last year, I think it was, we had members of a national group that are trying to expand the Freedom Caucus mm-hmm. into state legislators. Legislatures. They met with some folks here in Tennessee and left, re- refusing to start yes. a Freedom Caucus in Tennessee because, per their statement, our Republican Party, they— they couldn't find anyone conservative and or enough conservatives to have a Freedom Caucus yeah, here in and, Tennessee. And before James answers, one comment to that. I will tell you that whenever I've gone to D.C. – that happened last January, whenever I've or maybe early February. Whenever I've gone to D.C. since that vote or since that decision by the state – Andy Roth in the state Freedom Caucuses, everybody looks at me and says, man, what's wrong with your Tennessee – coalition what's wrong with your tennessee republicans that they weren't even good enough because remember the state freedom caucus has now a foothold in states like connecticut what's another state that you wouldn't otherwise think of as being a conservative state they've got caucuses in liberal states in blue states and yet here we are in the broad brush red state of tennessee and we don't have enough house members senate members who are conservative enough to get the endorsement of the state Freedom Caucus? Well, I wish I had the silver bullet and could just give you one simple answer. How do we address the rhino problem or how do we get more conservatives uh, to be outspoken in our legislature? Let's face facts. Um, We have super majorities in both chambers. We are, in essence, victims of our own success. Mm -hmm. Just like we were discussing at the federal level, Had there been a huge red wave, the influence of a a handful of conservatives would have been uh, just diminished. It would have just uh, been washed over. We're kind of in the same situation here in the state of Tennessee when you've got 75 out of 99 House members who are Republicans. That caucus has Republicans and only a handful of folks are willing to stand up on Mm -hmm. conservative principle. They're not going to have a strong voice. So. I'm, I'm not going to suggest that it's, uh, you know, in our best interest to have more Democrats in our state uh, chambers. But mm-hmm. um, but the Republicans know. would certainly have to work a little bit harder, maybe, at being conservative or getting or, or making sure that they get the votes when it comes election time because they're just they're just too comfortable right now. Well, the other problem is um, and you kind of saw what happened uh, in your own race. You know, the power of incumbency is strong. Anytime that there are these open seats, we don't necessarily have. All the conservatives working in one one uh, mm-hmm. you know same direction point same, same direction, direction. yeah we don't, we don't have a we don't have a bench <clears throat> so no to speak. but uh, you know when you have some of these open seats and you might have two conservatives run against a moderate who do you think is going to win mm-hmm. um, that happens too often uh, maybe your listeners don't remember but <laughs> at one time Kevin Kukaji considered a run for U.S. Senate. 2013, <clears throat> sorry, 2013 before the 2014 <laughs> race. That's right, Lamar Alexander. Now the one, and what happened, James? Well, um, Joe Carr was uh, selected as the the conservative candidate in that particular race. Uh, we actually went uh, to Nashville and caucused with a group of conservatives to basically pick our one candidate. We didn't want to dilute the race. 
I don't know that the best candidate was selected in that particular process. Well, remember, I backed out for that reason. I know you did. That was very honorable, Kevin. I, because I saw that it was going to split the party anyway, yes. and I, I determined, even though I was convicted I should be in that race for principled reasons, because the other candidate would not get out at any point, we even asked the other candidate if at some point he was not leading in the polls, would he get out? And he said no. And so it was It was very clear that he was not going to be willing. He was in it for himself rather he, than he for the cause. He was a perennial candidate. <clears throat> Let's face facts. Joe Carr has run for office multiple times, has been only successful on a couple of occasions. So yeah, he was going to, he was going to stay in that race no matter what. So it was- So I got out because- I didn't want to divide the party and uh, divide our side of the party, right? Divide the grassroots and the conservatives. So, yeah, I stepped aside. Thanks for bringing me in, back into that, <laughs> James. But yes, That's, that is what happened. That is one of my uh, one of the benefits of having me here is I can provide some history and background. Mm-hmm. With what you know of our General Assembly here in Tennessee, what do you think, in your mind, what do you think 2023 might hold for us conservatives? here in Tennessee. Is there any particular issue that we're facing that we might think we actually have some, have a little bit of hope on or anything that you feel like um, is an issue that we're, that's going to get accomplished on the more conservative vein of issues? If I'm going to be realistic, I'm not going to suggest that there's going to be a lot of conservative legislation that makes it through the General Assembly. That makes it out of committee. That ever makes it out of committee, (laughs) and and for a variety of reasons. But what I am hopeful for is maybe an opportunity to change some of the processes by which the General Assembly operates. You know, transparency is a major issue when it comes to knowing what bills are being proposed. Gary, I know you've been uh, following a lot of legislation as it goes through the process. One of the things that we don't really have a whole lot of insight in is the amendments that are uh, put on some of these bills. Uh, many of the lawmakers file caption bills, which simply open up a chapter in the Tennessee Code and would allow a uh, lawmaker to draft legislation on anything that falls within that particular area of, of law. But then, you know, when they start drafting these amendments, we, we don't necessarily have insight to what they're they're going to actually propose until they're about ready to vote on mm-hmm. it. Uh, so what we're asking for folks uh, in the legislature to do is to make those amendments available immediately once they are filed and have them uh, directly associated with the bill that they're going to modify. Because if you are sophisticated enough, if you understand how to research uh, bill information on the legislative website, you can find those amendments, yep. but the average person probably not. And to the uh, Tennessee General Assembly's credit, they do have a very sophisticated, well-organized website where you can do a lot of good research. Mm-hmm. That's true. But if an amendment is being proposed, it usually gets lumped into one huge PDF document. Uh, this document That's has- That's very hard to find and sometimes not available. On right, right. It may not even be available. You're right. Um, but it's this huge file. Um, the order in which those amendments are placed into this file, it's random. It's just whenever they, they decided to add it to the file, it's not searchable. It's effectively images of these documents. They're printed out documents. They make an image of it and then include it in this file. So you can't even do a search uh, for a particular word or a bill number. None of that. So you would actually have to scroll through, and I have many, many mornings, spent hours, maybe not hours, but a lot of time trying to find an amendment 
that might be modifying a particular bill that we were, we were closely watching. So, so it's frustrating. So quiz question. Now, this is an easy one. Oh. First, okay. first to answer, right? Guess a jelly bean or maybe a <laughs> Christmas cookie. Do you think that the difficulty of finding those amendments, in fact, the difficulty in general, is an accident or on purpose? On purpose. Easy. That's an easy one. James, your delay uh, is... I, I feel like there might be some intentionality behind that. <laughs> um, ding, 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 ding. And the interesting thing to point out about these captions... So caption bills, again, like you mentioned, yeah, they're they're basically placeholders. They're just... Mm -hmm. They don't say anything, really. It's sort of a blank bill until such time as a legislator wants to pull this caption bill out. And and so what 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 used to be, to your eyes, only a sentence of gibberish is now a 20 page bill. Oh yeah. Overnight. Oh yeah. And the And there may be multiple 20 <laughs> page amendments and, for and that the one issue bill. the issue that's worth pointing out it's not only that the general public has not an op has not had an opportunity to see and respond and you know instruct their elected representatives on those amendments but oftentimes the elected officials that are going to be voting on that in committee haven't seen it either. Got to pass it to read it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Nancy Pelosi's most famous line, right? We got to pass it to know what's in it. So, do you think there? So, there's a move to actually change that process. And I and I would imagine if if the process is changed in such a way where every amendment has to be pre-filed, so to speak. Um, well, they have to be pre-filed. Well, but I'm, what yeah. I'm saying is, yeah, oftentimes they're not made available. Amendments usually aren't made available to the public until the amendment is voted on and, um, and put on the bill Correct. in Correct. committee. But you may have, out of 10 amendments, only one of them, there's nine other amendments that are under consideration that the public would never, have never even seen, mm -hmm. right? Do you think along with making all of that available to the public, I would assume it would also require some kind of a waiting period. Like if you're going to file an amendment, it, it can't go into committee like tomorrow. Like there needs well, to be there's, like there's seven already, days or some, some, something. Right. There's already a process uh, by which they must file their amendments by a date certain. It's not like you described. They can't just file it and then unless the committee chair agrees to hear an untimely filed amendment that that is a that is an option that the chair can exercise and so long as the rules are in place then they have to follow whatever has been established uh, at the beginning of, of the year uh, whenever they determine all the rules so i would just submit to you that as we may be stepping in the right direction but as long as the rules still allow a chair to bring up an untimely filed amendment to be heard, all of this may be for naught. Because what they may now do is the amendment that they actually want to bring forward that they don't want you to see is going to be the one that's not been filed mm -hmm. timely. So that's not been made public. And that's only, you know, you see, you see where I'm getting, yeah. where I'm going with uh, this. Let, let's hope that that's there's, a rare situation. There's always a, there's all, see mm -hmm. where there's a will, there's a way. There's a way. Yep. Anyway. Well, very good, guys. Um, I think we probably should leave with some music, don't you think? Do, oh, we, boy. do we still have that Pennies from Heaven? <laughs> right? Bookends. You know, even though it's not a Christmas song, it just it sounds Christmassy. Yeah. Maybe it is. I th it's it's got to be it's because, because of Elf. It's because it's of Elf. The subliminal work of movies. Uh, I love Christmas. No leftist can destroy Christmas for me. <laughs> 
Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Gary. Yep. He's up, 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 upside down and trading for a package of sunshine and ravioli. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. (laughs) ¶¶